for listening to this sermon from Garden City Methodist Church. We want to invite you to worship with us each Sunday at 10.30 a.m., either in person or online. You can come to our beautiful sanctuary at 62 Varnado Avenue, Garden City, Georgia, or you can worship with us online as we stream our services at GardenCityUMC.com. Well, we're fixing to wrap up our series of the in-between. We're fixing to wrap up um, this, this time of conflict, this time of uh, transition between the time that David killed Goliath and when David became king. And uh, we're, we're nearing the end of that story. Saul's been hunting David down just like a dog and he took a little break for a little while, but then he went back at it. Saul is losing all of these battles. He is taking God's people in the way. And, uh, and then finally, the Amalekites caught up with Saul. The Philistines caught up with Saul, and uh, they killed him. And Saul and, uh, and his son Jonathan both die. And so we're at the end of that. After Saul and Jonathan are dead, we're in 2 Samuel this week. 2 Samuel chapter 1, verses 1 through 16. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from defeating the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. On the third day, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. When he came to David, he fell to the ground and did obeisance. David said to him, where have you come from? He said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. David said to him, how did things go? Tell me. He answered, the army fled from battle, but also many of the army fell and died. And Saul and his son Jonathan also died. Then David asked the young man who was reporting to him, how do you know Saul and his son Jonathan died? The young man reporting said to him, I happen to be on Mount Gilboa. And there was Saul leaning on his spear, while the chariots and the horsemen drew close to him. When he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me, and I answered, Here, sir. And he said to me, Who are you? And I answered him, I'm an Amalekite. And he said to me, Come, stand over me and kill me, for my convulsions have seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood over him and killed him, for I knew that he could not live after he'd fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and all the men who were with him did the same. They mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for his son Jonathan, and for the army of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. David said to the young man who had reported to him, Where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a resident alien. And Amalekite. David said to him, Were you not afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called to one of the young men and said, Come here and strike him down. So he struck him down and he died. And David said to him, Your blood will be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You ever heard the saying, Don't shoot the messenger? Evidently, David had not heard that say, <laughs> because, uh, man, he killed this guy who told him that Saul was dead. 
Didn't we just talk last week about how wonderful and merciful David was because he spared Saul in that cave? So what changed? How come David's killing this Amalekite just for telling him the news that Saul was dead? All he was doing was delivering a message, really. Well, maybe it was because the messenger was an Amalekite. You know, David was, Israel was in the midst of battles with the Amalekites. And maybe he just didn't trust this guy. That this enemy of his really had Israel's best interests at heart when he killed Saul. Maybe he was just so used to killing Amalekites in battle, he figured, well, let's warn more dead Amalekite. I'll just kill him too. Maybe his mercy did not extend that far to the enemies of Israel. Or maybe he was just overwhelmed with grief. You know, there's evidence that despite his many reasons for, uh, despite the many reasons he had not to care about Saul, David had a soft spot in his heart for Saul. Saul was his father-in-law, his former mentor, and God's anointed of Israel. So even though Saul was coming after David, David, he just emotionally had, had these feelings that were strong enough for Saul. And, and maybe it was because he was Jonathan's dad and he loved Jonathan so much that his grief was so strong that he could not bear to be around the man who killed Saul. Even if that guy said it was a mercy kill. I don't know what was going through David's head, going on in David's heart at this point. It could have been all of those things, or it could have been none of these things. You know, there's, there's evidence in the text that David's death sentence for this guy might have been justified. For example, it's pretty likely that this guy was not telling the truth. See, we're in 2 Samuel, but at the end of 1 Samuel, the author tells the story of, of Saul's death on his own in 1 Samuel chapter 31. And in that chapter, we see Saul, he knows that his, his loss in battle is imminent, and so he falls on his own sword and dies. There's no random Amalekite guy standing around in the wings waiting to finish Saul off. So this guy's story conflicts with the story that the author has already told. So it might be safe to assume that this guy was lying. And kind of what I think happened was that this Amalekite warrior stumbled upon Saul's already dead body, pillaged it, took his crown and, and the things that proved that he was the king, and then made up a story of his own involvement because he thought he could earn some brownie points with David. Right? He knows that David and Saul are on the outs. He knows that Saul's been trying to kill David. And he knows that David is a shoo-in to be the next king. So he figures, man, if I tell him the story about how I killed Saul, how I helped him out, and then brought, brought the crown to him and, and bowed down, maybe David will thank me. Maybe he'll have a job for me. Maybe he'll make me secretary of education or something like that. You know, he'll give me some posh position where I can, where I can lay back and have a good thing because I have done this thing and helped David out. I think he assumed that David would be thrilled that the man who was trying to kill him was dead. 
Why wouldn't he be? David can stop running now. David could go home. He could live in cities. He could sleep on a bed. He could be around his own people. He doesn't have to sneak around in caves and live in the wilderness. He has a claim to the throne. He can finally stop this in-between time and get on with living the life that God had promised him. David had every reason to be thrilled with this guy, to say, thank you for taking care of Saul for me. Now I am going to reward you with some mercy and maybe some money too. After all, when your enemy falls, it feels good, right? I remember in college, uh, there was this guy that ran around in the same circles as me, and I could not stand this guy. We'll call him, for the sake of this story, Willis. And uh, Willis was arrogant. He was smug. Um, I just felt like he was disrespectful. But the worst thing that he did was he was going out with the girl that I wanted to date. All right? So I did not care for this guy at all. And uh, my friends and I, though, at, at the campus ministry, we went through this period where we would just randomly challenge each other to wrestling matches. Just stupid college stuff. But there was just this few weeks where we would just clear out this spot on the floor and, and wrestle. And I remember one day, Willis uh, challenged my friend Robbie to a wrestling match. You guys, Robbie was jacked. Robbie was a state championship wrestler in high school. He was in the Marine National Guard. He was, oh no, he wasn't in the National Guard, he was a reservist. I'm sorry, a Marine reservist, and he was in between tours of duty. And when he went home during the holidays, he was a volunteer firefighter. Robbie is not the kind of guy I would ever mess with. He was great. I mean, Robbie and I were close. So, I mean, you know, Willis, for some reason, thought that he could take Robbie in a wrestling match because I think he was just that arrogant or whatever. So we gathered around in a circle to watch this wrestling match, and Robbie brought him down. I mean, it, was, it didn't take long at all. It was instantaneous. Willis's face was smashed into the carpet, and, uh, and Robbie pinned him down, and it was just brutal. And it was the best feeling in the world to see the guy going out with the girl that I wanted to go out with, that I couldn't stand, getting his face rubbed into the carpet by my buddy. Oh, my gosh. It, it puts a smile on my face just telling you about how great that felt. And we don't have a word in the English language to describe that feeling. But lucky for us, the Germans coined a term for it. There, there is a, literally a word in German that describes that exact feeling of seeing Robbie smash Willis's face into the carpet. And it's called Schadenfreude. What a lovely German-sounding word. Schadenfreude. And Schadenfreude is defined as the feeling of satisfaction you get at someone else's misfortune. It's a mashup of the German word for harm and the German word for joy. Joy harm or harm joy. Pleasure derived from another person's misfortune. It's that feeling you get when you're going down the interstate and you're driving 
around the speed limit, you know, five or seven miles over. You're bopping along, a safe, responsible person. And that a guy just zips fast you like you're standing still. And then five minutes later, you see him on the side of the road getting pulled over by the police. That, my friends, is schadenfreude. You know what I'm talking about. And this Amalekite guy had every reason to think that when David found out that Saul was finally dead, that David's schadenfreude was going to kick in and that he'd be extremely happy. But he was wrong in that calculation. And it ended up costing him his life. My question is, why not? Why didn't David feel that harm joy? Why couldn't David revel a little bit in Saul's downfall? What kept him from indulging in this shot of Freud? First of all, we already talked about how, how David genuinely loved and respected Saul. He refused to dehumanize Saul. He refused to see him as just a generic enemy, but he kept valuing him as a person and as a father figure. But I also think it went beyond that. You see, David understood that he was about to be a king too. And that means that a target was about to be painted on his back as well. Any harm that could happen to Saul when he was king could happen to David too. You see, while this particular in-between for David was coming to a close, he was fixing to start a brand new one. In fact, David never really stopped being in-between a rock and a hard place. David knew that his victory in this situation was not going to translate into victory for him forever. In fact, some kind of conflict followed him and chased him for the rest of his life. First, he started out being in between the southern kingdom and Saul's son, Ishabeth, who was in the northern kingdom. Saul's son, his, besides Jonathan, was claiming rule over Israel. So there were two kingdoms that were fighting it out, David in the south and Ishabeth in the north. And for the next few years, Israel was in a civil war to determine which man would rightly sit on the throne. Well, then David cleared that up. He eventually became the undisputed king of both kingdoms over the whole country. But then David was torn in between his righteousness and temptation. And that's when he took Bathsheba and murdered her husband and covered it up and got called to the carpet by Nathan. Well, then he repented of that. He got beyond that in between. And then he was in between his own rule and his son Absalom's insurrection. His own son tried to take over in a violent coup. The thing that David refused to do to Saul, his own son did to him. David never really arrived. He was always in between one conflict or another. The thing about it is David wasn't always the good guy in these in-betweens. Sometimes he rebelled against the will of God and went the wrong way. I think David knew early on, to his credit, that whatever standard he held for Saul, he was going to have to live up to himself. So while it was tempting to feel schadenfreude in this situation, I think he knew there was a time when that would come back to bite him. Because how could he rejoice when a king of Israel fell when he was about to be a king of Israel himself? 
I think the most important reason that David didn't cave to the schadenfreude is that he was a man after God's own heart. And taking joy in someone else's harm, it's not really in the heart of God. It's not a godly reaction. Which is a problem for us, because I don't know about you, but I feel like schadenfreude is the spirit of our age. Right? It is the defining thing that we, we come across. There's this, this, it's in the air around us sometimes. It's pervasive in our society. We divide ourselves into these camps, and we love watching people in the opposing camp suffer. And we're openly hypocritical about it, right? When we see someone in another camp has a moral failing, we dance on their graves and cancel them and talk about how horrible they are. But when someone in our camp has a moral failing, we make excuses and act like they're the victim. Oh, don't kick a man when he's down if he's in my camp. But if he votes the other way than me, then kick away. It's like cable news has become our schadenfreude industrial complex, just manufacturing this feeling, getting so joyful when somebody else fails or somebody else falls. It's such a sinister, sneaky feeling too because we can tell ourselves, oh, I'm not really happy about their suffering. I'm just happy that justice was served. I'm just... I'm just happy that, that, that the right, the goodness prevailed. Why shouldn't we be happy when bad people get what they deserve? Well, are you equally happy when you get what you deserve? Are you equally happy when justice gets served to you? I know I'm not. I don't like it when justice gets served to me. I don't like it when my comeuppance arrives. Only when yours comes. And this lie we tell ourselves about this age of whataboutism that we're in is that we're on the side of right and good, and everybody who's against us gets what they deserve. Are we sure that we're the ones that are all so holy and right? What happens when the shoe is on the other foot? The Bible is clear about this one thing. If we expect mercy, we'd better be willing to extend mercy to other people. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Because the fact is, God isn't happy when people fall. God takes no delight when people fail. He doesn't like it when we're in pain. You know, the concept of karma isn't found anywhere in the Scripture because he says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So if karma was really a thing, if, if the universe really gave me what we deserved, then we'd all be doomed for hell. But God's way isn't the way of karma. It's the way of the cross. It's the way of forgiveness. It's the way of the God who says that he doesn't desire that any should perish, but that all should come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Schadenfreude assumes that we are in the right, but we know better than that. We're nothing but sinners saved by grace. And so if God doesn't gloat over our enemies falling, 
neither should we. Just think about how refreshing it would be if the Christians in this world acted as people of grace all the time. If we were generous with our understanding and generous with our second chances, what if we forgave people 70 times 7? In the midst of a world that's out there looking for excuses to jump on people and cancel them and not forgive them, in the midst of the world that's just chomping at the bit to hold everyone's feet to the fire, what if the church was a respite from that environment, an oasis of grace? What if the church was a place where when you know you're in trouble and you know you've messed up, that you could go there and be confident that you'd land in an environment where people offered you understanding and grace. Instead of fighting fire with fire, what if God's people were a refreshing alternative to the schadenfreude industrial complex on cable news? Boy, what a witness to the world that would be. Now, does that mean that we stop calling a spade a spade? Does that mean that we don't worry about sin or wrongdoings? Does that mean that a church is just a place where anything goes and nobody ever gets their feelings hurt because we're not allowed to talk about anything that anybody's done wrong? No. It doesn't mean that we give sin a pass. It doesn't mean that we allow people to keep harming others if they're harming others. We don't, we don't, grace doesn't mean that we look the other way when sin comes and we pretend like it's not there. Grace means that we acknowledge sin we talk about sin, especially our own sin, by the way, not just everybody else's sin. And then we extend grace and forgiveness. It's the way of Jesus. You know, you confess your sin and then receive forgiveness. We, we talk about problems. We talk about sin. We talk about hurt. We talk about the evil in this world. And then we offer grace and forgiveness. Today, I think God is calling us to put away schadenfreude for good. I think he's calling us to be people of grace, to replace that harm joy with forgiveness. You know, forgiveness wouldn't be a thing if people never did anything wrong to you. You would never forgive anybody if no one ever sinned against you, if no one ever hurt you. The only reason we value forgiveness is because we assume that there is going to be wrongdoing in the world. Something to forgive. We've got to give people the latitude to be wrong and then to receive forgiveness. And this comes by following this example of David. A David who had a mortal enemy in Saul but refused to seek his harm. Refused to dance on his grave, refused to indulge in schadenfreude. Follow David's example by rejecting the easy and the prideful feelings that the world gives us to puff us up and replace those feelings with grace and mercy and forgiveness that comes through the Holy Spirit. In our in-betweens, when we're in the midst of conflict, when we're in the midst of uncertainty, when we don't know what's coming next, let's be people of grace. 
When we see our enemies fall, let's reach out in healing and in help. And in that way, we can spread the gospel of Jesus when words just won't do. I want to invite you to pray. God, I thank you for David. He truly was a man after your own heart. God, while he was not in a perfect example, only Jesus is in a perfect example. He was a good example. God, I pray that as we deal with these feelings, as we deal with conflict, as we deal with sin and wrongdoing, God, I pray that you will give us the power through your Holy Spirit to not seek out our enemy's harm, but to extend love and grace and forgiveness. God, you have forgiven us so many times. So many times we didn't deserve it. Make us people of grace too. Show up for us, God. In your name I pray. Amen.